0: It's interesting to look at ancient events through eyes of uh, people who describe it as if they're really there. That's the power of an eyewitness account. You know, I've been thinking this last week with COVID-19 and uh, the significance that it is globally and particularly in our culture here, that although there are going to be politicians and scientists and sociologists and historians that are going to record what has happened over this time and they'll put it in books and they'll write in papers and there will be research papers and all that stuff but the most powerful stories that our great-grandchildren or grandchildren are going to hear are going to be our own stories as we tell them what we went through and what it felt like and what being quarantined for 14 days in your bedroom felt like and all of those things it's the eyewitness account That's really going to add power to whatever the historians write. And here's the interesting thing. To me, this is how Easter has come to us. It's come to us through the eyewitness accounts and the eyewitness experiences of people who were actually on the ground, what they saw, what they experienced, what they heard, what they felt, how it unfolded for them. And this is how Easter has come to us. It might surprise you to know that we don't believe the events of Easter because the Bible tells us so. We believe it because people who were on the ground in Jerusalem that particular weekend experienced Easter, experienced it. And then they wrote down what it was that they experienced and what they saw and what they felt. Now, that doesn't take away from the uh, inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. It's just that what we call the Bible wasn't put together till 300 years after the events, and it was the events themselves as people experienced them and then started to write what down what they saw and, and uh, what it was like to be there that really carried the message the first several hundred years. We believe it because of a Jewish tax collector named Matthew who didn't go along with the Jewish system but somehow Jesus encountered him and he encountered Jesus and had a transformational effect in his world and his life and he became a follower of Jesus and And he writes about what that was like and what Easter was like for him. There's a young man named Mark who very likely recorded what Peter experienced and writes it down in the Greek language so that Greek citizens can hear what it was that Peter actually experienced and how Mark records it. There's a research scientist, a doctor by the name of Luke, who carefully researches all the events and the anecdotal evidence and the eyewitness accounts and he writes them down and he writes to his friend Theophilus and said, I took painstaking care to make sure that all the details that I'm writing down about what happened through the lives of these eyewitnesses is accurate and true and you can trust it. And then of course there's Paul who had his own experience with Jesus for sure and that marked him, there's no question, but what was it like to spend time Ten years interacting back and forth with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and to hear their stories of what happened and to learn from them powerful experience for Paul and maybe the most significant one is Jesus own biological brother James. James was among the family members who came to visit Jesus one day and say like what you're doing Jesus like what you're saying we think you might need some like mental health resources to help you with that they actually wanted to go lock him up and But it would be James who would write about how he discovered that Jesus was the Messiah and he was the king He was God in a body and I don't know about you But what would it take for your sibling to change their mind so profoundly about you that you? Become their Lord and you consider yourself a servant of them. So This is how these stories came to us, but there's one central piece that they all answer and it's a question they were asking it's a question that we all need to ask maybe it's one of the most important questions we could ask and it's this question so who exactly was jesus and you know what they what they conclude they conclude based on the circumstances and situations around the resurrection that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's God incarnate here on earth. It's, it's interesting to me that when they, when they come to their conclusion, that isn't because of the things that Jesus taught, though he taught amazing things. It wasn't his knowledge and his wisdom and his insight into matters. It wasn't even his like, miraculous things that he did that were convincing to them. It was one thing that they all encountered an experience that they would say that defines who Jesus is and it's his resurrection it's his resurrection the story of Jesus if you think about it without the resurrection isn't really all that remarkable if Jesus doesn't come back to life again he's just one more nationalistic political leader who trumpets the cause of Israel and turns out to be nothing he's a wannabe Messiah who can't deliver he's uh, a snake oil salesman in the end and without the resurrection he he's nothing he's we're not even talking about him but it is this resurrection that is so profound and so important and we hear about it not because the Bible says it's so though it does we hear about it because of the eyewitness accounts of people who were actually there telling us what they experienced one of the key people that tells the story in his own unique way is a guy by the name of John Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was one of the close group of 12 that were part of Jesus' discipleship group. And he gives his own account of what happened in Jerusalem that weekend and the events leading up to it. And he too will point to his encounter in and around the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection were the defining moment for him him in his approach to it, for sure. You see, what's interesting for, for John is that, like the others, resurrection wasn't even a plausible idea of how it would end. You can't, like the Messiah can't die, the Son of God can't die, God in a body can't die, so the notion and the idea of a resurrection was impossible to even consider as an option. And as the events of that weekend unfold, it becomes clear that it was not an option that they were considering. And yet, surprisingly, it's a resurrection and the reality of a resurrection that gets the whole march and To Jerusalem and what happens on that fateful weekend gets it gets it going adds traction to it what resurrection is that well it's the resurrection of Jesus close friend Lazarus that happens a few weeks before Lazarus gets sick and he's a close companion of Jesus but Jesus is delayed he can't get there he's healed other people but he arrives too late in fact he arrives on funeral day where they're mourning and weeping over the loss of Lazarus and Jesus does this amazing thing he brings Lazarus from death to life. It's an amazing experience. And word gets out that this is what Jesus has done and this is what he's capable of. Like a resurrection will get your attention. It will. And it did. For Jesus close friends but very quickly the ripple effect of that was beyond their close friends and others began to hear about it and that really developed interest in what Jesus what who he was and what he could do and there's a whole movement that happens in the city of Jerusalem and the religious leaders of the day who are a little insecure in their own um, who they are as people and leaders they realize in fact we read this in the scripture that they're concerned that Jesus is going to take over what they think is theirs, that the whole city is going to become followers of Jesus, and they can't have that because if they become followers of Jesus, they're not followers of theirs, and they would lose their influence, and they decide they're going to step in. They try a variety of ways to try to stop Jesus, and ultimately they conclude the only thing left for us to do is to try to get him isolated and then have Rome, convince Rome to take his life, and this is the plan that they exercise. John tells us, that jesus and his friends um are together on the mount of olives and uh, jesus arranges for them to have one last passover meal in jerusalem together and it's really a profound evening because it's going to be this evening where jesus tells them about something he calls a new covenant well they knew about the old covenant the old covenant was the law of moses and uh It was complicated and it was for a set group of people that were meant to take it and bless the whole world but that hadn't turned out that way and now Jesus was talking about a new covenant and the covenant he talked about is I want you to love the world like I love you. That's what I want you to do. And it didn't make sense to them but he was about to show them the next day what the kind of love that he was talking about which they couldn't grasp even in that evening where he explains it to them that it's going to be the loss of his own life that's going to be this new covenant. He's going to love them to death. And then he says but he's going to come back to life again and it's all just confusing to them and they're not sure how this all works out and what this new covenant actually plays out to be in their lives but there's one around the group either because of impatience or he sees an opportunity to make some money he realizes that uh, he can um, help the religious establishment of his day and he decides to do it his name is Judas and he for a sum of money decides uh, hey look i can help you with your problem with jesus i'll isolate him i know his routine i know where they're going to where he gathers with us as friends and so if you uh, give me a little cash i can help you out with that and this is exactly what judas does and he leaves the little assembly in that upper room a little early that evening and goes off and does the dastardly deed following that meeting uh, and dinner together in that upper room jesus And his friends go out to an olive grove about 10 minutes or so walk from the edge of the city of Jerusalem. And there it would be that Jesus would be arrested. Judas would betray him. And uh, Jesus would be shackled and bound and taken off to Caiaphas the high priest where he would be falsely charged with some uh, charges that uh, were no doubt trumped up and weren't real but sufficient enough that it kind of turned the city against Jesus. They know that they can't execute Jesus without Rome's consent. And so they, after abusing Jesus physically and in in so many ways, they send him off to Pilate where Pilate sees what he has on his hands and realizes that Jesus is innocent, wants to set him free. But the crowd, he needs to appeal to them as well. And there's a give and take back and forth. And finally, uh, Pilate decides, well, I'll just, I'll beat him to within an inch of his life. And I'm sure that'll convince them that, Uh, he's innocent and they'll let him go but that isn't even enough the crowd declares we have no king but Caesar and uh, so Pilate relents and uh, allows them to take Jesus just outside the city to uh, the hill of Golgotha and there Jesus is crucified John records it for us because he was there and it's a profound profound thing for him as he's no doubt at the foot of the cross looking at what is happening he records for us that uh, Jesus gets to the final moments of his life asks for a drink and after taking a sip of that Jesus declares that it's finished and we're told that then John saw Jesus bow his head and give up his spirit and Jesus is dead he's gone and this was never to happen and now, the story and the hope and the dream that John and the others had would be gone as well. What do you do in that moment? Well, maybe they all just stayed around the foot of the cross for a while and uh, tried to comfort each other, and maybe in silence just can't believe what has just happened. Maybe at some point they decide to spend the evening together at one of their homes in Jerusalem and in silence, arm in arm, they walk down the streets of Jerusalem to one of their homes. We don't know exactly what happens. But we do know this, John records, that at some point, Jesus' body is taken down from the cross. Uh, it's two people who are sympathetic to the cause of Jesus come along and take his body. And they're prepared to bury his body appropriately. They have a certain time frame they have to work in because it's close to sunset on Passover and they need to, have that done by sunset. So they get 75 pounds of myrrh and incense, the typical embalming products that were used in that time. And uh, they ask Pilate for Jesus' body. They take him and they embalm Jesus. They put him in a new tomb. And that's where he is. That's where he's going to stay. Now, why would they do that? Because they weren't anticipating a resurrection. If they had anticipated a resurrection, why bring the embalming? Uh, products that they bring. No, there was nobody expecting a resurrection. John recalls that they take the body and the embalm it and place it in the tomb and then we don't know what happens from there. Like I said, maybe they go together as a group. What we do know is that Sunday morning, John and Peter are together someplace on that Sunday morning and it's still dark. It's early Sunday morning. Suddenly, there's a panicked knock on the front door and they get up, they go to the door, and there's Mary Magdalene, a friend of Jesus who he had miraculously freed and rescued and given her a new shot at life and cared so much for her, and she cared for him, and there she is, panicked, and she cries out to them, they've taken the body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have placed him. Maybe she was thinking this, you know, I, was, I couldn't sleep last night, and I... I, I was so concerned that Jesus' had been, Jesus' body had been treated with dignity and respect, and he'd been properly buried. And so I couldn't wait for the, for the new day to come, and I rushed over to the tomb, and I looked in. I was a little dazed. I didn't know exactly what was happening at that point. I looked in, and Jesus' body is gone, gone, gone. It was empty, and she concludes, which is the only reasonable thing to assume, was that not that he was alive, but that someone had stolen the body. She doesn't assume a miraculous resurrection. Nobody was. Her faith isn't that strong. Besides, it wasn't even an option to consider. She isn't expecting a miracle, just like nobody else is. And this is what captures John's attention, that the tomb is empty and he doesn't have an explanation. So we're told that Peter and John... Run to the tomb. For some reason, John feels it's important to record for us that he got there first, like he's faster than Peter. I'm not sure why he tells us that, but evidently it was maybe important for his ego or whatever it was. And uh, he gets there, but John is also honest about it enough. He says, I didn't go into the tomb. Why wouldn't he go in? Well, maybe he's afraid. He says that he stooped in and he looked. He saw the linen wrappings, but, but he didn't go there. Go in. Well, why not? I mean, it's dark. It's a graveyard. This is a tomb. Why would he go in? But he's honest about his confusion and uncertainty about a resurrection. That's not even in his mind. And then we're told that Peter arrives. And Peter, being Peter, he just rushes right into the this open tomb. And then he sees something that's out of the ordinary. Maybe he calls John in to come look at it. He's noticed that the linen wrappings that had been wrapped around Jesus' body were now removed from jesus body and they've been neatly folded and they were lying separate from one another and just this odd kind of thing that's not how this should have happened if in fact the body had been stolen who would take the time to fold the linen wrappings wouldn't you just grab and go or maybe you would say well i'm gonna offload the 75 pounds of embalming uh, material and just grab and run but no this is not a rush job it's not a mess somebody's thought this through or something other than a stolen body has happened here. We're told that John musters enough strength to go finally into the tomb and as he does, something changes in John's life that marks the transformation for him. He suddenly puts some dots together. He puts some pieces together. There's some understanding that he suddenly has when for the first time the notion, the idea is that Jesus is alive, that he has been raised from death to life. This is what we read. It says, Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, that's John, and he saw and he believed. For until then, until then, they, including John, still hadn't understood the Scriptures that Jesus said that he must rise from the dead. It's like John would say, I didn't get it. I couldn't figure it out. I heard him teach about it. I heard him say this is what he was going to do. He tried to explain it. I couldn't make sense of it. I nodded my head in agreement, but it made no sense to me. I found him interesting and amazing and captivating, but I didn't understand this, but now I do. Suddenly, there's an understanding from John, and interestingly enough, what John experiences is what every single person who's ever put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has come to. You see, you understand, and then you respond. If you don't see and you don't understand, you don't respond like John responds. But if pieces come together, the understanding, the enlightenment is there, and then there's a response. And John's response is to accept that a resurrection happened. And Jesus is who he said he was. And everything that he taught was true and right and real. I wonder in that moment if John didn't think himself of the things that Jesus had promised or said about himself that he kind of varnished over because he didn't understand. And suddenly those things that Jesus said about himself were suddenly all true, not just that he was alive, but because he was alive, everything that he had said was now true as well. John records in his whole eyewitness account very early on, he, dis- he says that in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus and the Word was with God, and the Word became uh, God on earth, and he speaks about uh, who Jesus is, that he is in fact the incarnate God on earth, and maybe it's in this moment that John realizes that as being true. Maybe John thinks back to Jesus' baptism, where he's described when he's first seen as, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in that moment, John realizes that This is what Jesus has done because he's alive. The sins of the world have been taken care of because he's alive. That crucifixion on Friday night now makes sense where it didn't before. Possibly John recalled because he writes it himself, famous verse, he says, God so loved the world. I realize it now. I didn't till this resurrection, but I realize now that God so loved the world that everybody, every single person who believes and leans on Jesus Christ, can have life and life forever. Maybe, again, he remembers uh, Jesus saying, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. And maybe that has a whole new understanding, and all the other things that Jesus taught suddenly come into clarity for John and it suddenly makes sense to him that the tomb is empty and the promises are true and he would say with i saw it with my own eyes i know it was true i saw what happened as john gets partway through his eyewitness account and then again he does a he writes something again as if to repeat himself at the end that It's so easy to pass over and not even see the significance of it, but it really is significant because in these two places in John's narrative, he's describing why he writes this down. He isn't just writing a historical record for people to look back on and see what happened. He isn't just telling people what he experienced so they can empathize with him. No, he has a specific reason why he's recording his eyewitness account the way that he does. It isn't just to describe what happened. But there's something else in his heart. In John 19, it says, "This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He's talking about himself. He speaks the truth so that you will also, you may also continue to believe. He wants people to believe. Not just that this happened, there's something else. And then he wraps up his story, and this is how he finishes in verse 30 and 31 of John 20. It says, "The disciples." and John is one of those. Says he, they saw Jesus do many other miracles, miraculous signs, in addition to the ones recorded in this book. And then get this. But these were written so that you may continue to believe, not just that Jesus came back to life, but Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. In so doing, it is John who reaches through the scope of history and he says, the reason I've told you about my experience and what I saw and I really did see it is I want you to believe and have the encounter with the resurrected Christ that I did. I want you to be able to put the dots together. Maybe you come to Easter every Easter and it's the same story because it's the same story. And you don't Think much about the implications of the resurrection, and you don't uh, you you maybe believe that it happened, but that's not why John tells the story. John doesn't just tell us the story so that we'll believe that it happened. He tells us a story that we'll believe because it happened, that because Jesus is alive, all the other things that Jesus taught about, everything else that Jesus did, are validated. So when Jesus says that he's the one that purchases our forgiveness because we haven't walked with God or we have walked away, that if he doesn't come back to life, that doesn't carry any weight. But because he back, comes back to life, it carries all the weight. I don't know in this season of fear and uncertainty and what's happening in your world as it relates to job and income and maybe just fear for your health or whatever you whatever you face and I don't know who you're looking to for strength or encouragement or help through that but if John was here I think he would turn to each one of us and go I'm going to tell you my story of what I saw and I know Jesus is alive but I'm not just interested in you believing that he's alive that's profound in itself but Lazarus was alive too What I want you to believe is I want you to believe because Jesus is alive. And I want to invite you to put your trust in him because he's alive. I want you to cast your fear and your concern on him because he's alive. I want so much for you to respond to Jesus the way I did john might say i put my full trust in him i rely on him i rest in him he's my king he's my messiah he's my my forgiver he's my redeemer he's the leader of my life and i think that's the invitation this easter is to take the weight of what we feel maybe we haven't walked closely with god maybe this is the first time you're thinking about jesus as the resurrection rest in him invite him to be your leader and your lord your forgiver watch what he does through the season of fear and tension and watch what he does for you watch how he engages your world in your heart so i would simply say with john john doesn't tell his story just that we would believe that jesus is alive he tells his story that we would believe because he is alive. If today is your day to say yes to Jesus, and I hope it is, or to say yes to Jesus in a fresh way, would you tell someone about that? I would love to hear about that myself. If you email me, brad at copperhills.org, I'll get back to you and I'll pray with you and encourage you. But I I really encourage you, Let don't let this Easter go by without a certainty of that yes now Jesus you've come into this world because you love this world you gave your life for this world because you love this world and by your resurrection you proved that you had authority over everything and you do that even in this moment as well Jesus we trust you and lean on you because it's true that you are alive Reveal Yourself to us again. Make this fresh and new. And this we ask for our sake, but we ask it in Your name. Amen.